due to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained, ordained the government for his purposes. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves. Consistent, fair application of law is in itself a good and moral thing, and that protects the weak. It protects the lawful. Our policies that can result in short-term separation of, of families is not unusual or unjustified. That was uh, our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, quoting Romans 13 and arguing that it provides uh, biblical support for the hardline immigration enforcement enacted by the Trump administration at the Mexican border earlier this summer. The argument that Sessions seems to be making is that since there is no, no authority since that which God has established, as we heard earlier, and since those who enforce the government's laws therefore have divine authority to punish lawbreakers, those who disobey the law by uh, crossing the border illegally deserve to cr suffer the consequences of lawbreaking. Now, this statement uh, caused outrage in some segments of the Christian community who feel it is a misinterpretation. And I'm, I'm not going to talk specifically about the immigration issue today, but it is one of the few times, I think, when a passage of scripture not about sexuality has been discussed recently in the public conversation. And so I thought it would be worth uh, looking at this passage today to try to understand what it, what it really means and how to fit it into the larger context of the Bible, which also includes stories like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Peter and Stephen, who decided it was more important to obey God rather than men. I remember that I, I first uh, confronted this question of whether it is better to obey the laws or better to obey um, God in fourth grade. I was, um, uh, probably I did before then actually, but, uh, but I, was, I was briefly uh, obsessed with uh, Harriet Tubman, um, the famous abolitionist and uh, participant in the Underground Railroad, because there was a popular children's biography, I think, that was released around that time. And I loved imagining the adventure of traveling the Underground Railroad from house to house, hiding from dogs, getting secret care packages from Quakers, crossing the river in my bare feet to make it to, to Canada. I think now that maybe some of Uncle Tom's cabin must have slipped into the story as well. Um, but uh, I remember being confused at one point in the story. In the biography that I was reading, there was a brief discussion of the Fugitive Slave Act, which made it illegal to shelter runaway slaves even in the north. And so Tubman had to travel further into Canada. This seemed like it would mean that the Underground uh, Railroad would stop working, that the biography would kind of end there. But although it was weakened, according to the biography, the, the Christians in the story kept it going. I remember my dad was sitting on the couch and I was wrapping a diaper rag around my head as a bandana to prepare for my next adventure on the Underground Railroad. Yeah, I was young, I'm sorry. And uh, my, my dad asked, or, and I, I asked my dad as I was preparing, Dad, um, how could Christians keep working on the Underground Railroad if it was illegal? I'm sure this is one of those, oh, hey, I was just enjoying my book and now I have to provide spiritual instructions for my kids sort of moment. But my dad did seem a little pleased and asked if I'd ever heard of abortion. I uh, said that I hadn't, and he told me that when a mom doesn't want a baby and stops it from being born, that's called abortion. And I said, but isn't that illegal? Um, my dad said the Supreme Court has decided that it's not always illegal, but some Christians still believe it's wrong, and they'll sit outside the doctor's office to prevent people from coming in until the police come and carry them away. 
my mom, who was walking out the door, overheard all this and stopped and explained to me that sometimes the mom is often only a little older than me and not ready to be a mom. I think at that moment, more than any other I can remember, my binary world of what was good and bad became suddenly fuzzy. I remember feeling like I wanted to cry, and I think I ran away and played video games in my parents', uh, my parents' uh, bedroom. Um, it becomes as no surprise that I haven't really resolved that tension between what the what is the when we should obey the government and when is right to obey the law uh, to disobey the law. Um, and over the last 240 years of our country, American Christians have also str- uh, struggled with this question. In the colonial era, um, uh, Quakers struggled to uh, figure out whether they could fully participate in this new government and this new economy that was based on slave trade and slave labor. Some in the Mennonite and other pacifistic denominations have uh, illegally resisted and evaded the calls for the draft. In um, the 1960s, white and black Christians would intentionally and provocatively break uh, segregation laws in the South and sit together in buses and on restaurants. And more recently, a few professing Christians have, based on their own interpretations of the Bible, refused to sign marriage license or fill birth control prescriptions and have sometimes faced legal consequences for doing so. Others have worked, contrary to the law, to provide care and sanctuary to those crossing our southern border without documentation. I doubt all of us here have exactly the same opinion of all of these cases and whether what was right to do, but I think we all hold our, we probably hold these differing opinions fairly strongly, and since we've clearly been told in today's passage that there's no government that has been established, other than that that has been established by God, how do we know when we have spiritual authorization to claim allegiance to a higher authority in contradiction to a governmental authority? When do we obey God rather than men? If this is a difficult question today, I expect it was even harder when Paul wrote it to the Romans. As the name of the letter, Romans, suggests this letter was written to the Christians in Rome. Um, Many of the Christians were Jewish, as we learn from the letter, And Jews usually came to Rome either as immigrants or as slaves. Um, Jewish immigrants uh, usually came from Alexandria because of an economic trade between Egypt and and Rome. And they seem to have been generally unpopular in Rome because of their customs such as monotheism, which posed an economic challenge to those who fashioned idols of Roman gods. We see a little bit of this in Acts when they go to Ephesus and the metal workers upset at them, uh, undermining his, his economy. Um, There's strange dietary requirements, uh, circumcision, which was thought to be particularly revolting in a culture in which semi-public male nudity was fairly common, and their Sabbath and holiday observations, which meant that they wouldn't work on those days and disrupt the economy in various ways. Um, This was also apparently um, so disturbing to some Roman slaveholders that some of them freed their Jewish slaves because they thought they were more trouble than they were worth. If, Despite all the, the punishment that they doled out, they still wouldn't work on the Sabbath or still wouldn't eat the non-kosher food. Eventually, the, the slaveholders just gave up. Um, back in Judea, extremists within the community also engaged in acts of terrorism against Roman officials. There are records of, Ju- of groups of Jewish assassins called the Daggermen um, that, uh, who would go around and kill other Jewish leaders were not sufficiently against Rome, in their opinion. In the uh, letter to the Romans, Paul mentions at the end of the book um, Priscilla and Aquila, who we've talked about many times about here. Um, These were two Jewish Romans who uh, Paul met in Corinth, and according to the book of Acts, he met them in Corinth because they'd been deported from Rome at the command of the emperor Claudius. At around the time that 
the letter to the Romans was written, we learn from other historical sources, uh, Claudius had kicked the Jews out of the city because of their disputations about Christus, and it's spelled with an E. We don't know exactly what that means. The, the spelling is wrong. Um, but uh, And it's also possible that uh, Christus or Christus there just means Messiah. The word Christ, it means Messiah. So it could be that the exile happens because there's so much... Um, kind of political unrest as the, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah to come and arguing about what that means. Um, but it could also have been that the conflict between the, the Jewish Christians and the, the non, non-Christian uh, Jewish community. So Paul is writing to a community that has a bad reputation in the city of Rome. As a Roman city, citizen by birth, Paul certainly understands the challenges that the Christians in the city face, but rather than encouraging them in a seditious kind of letter to organize against the Roman government, he tells them to follow the laws. Don't make the work of those charged with keeping the peace difficult, he seems to say. If you do, the punishment you face will be deserved. Some during the American Revolution attempted to uh, interpret Paul's directions as applying only to governments that are fair. They quoted the line, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but only for those who do wrong. And they argued that that rulers there then is defined by that passage, and they argued that rulers who terrorized those who did right were no longer legitimate authorities. And although there may have been good uh, reasons for rebelling against England in the 18th century, using this text as a basis for doing so seems to me a little bit weak. Rome was not especially good at protecting their Jewish residents. Yet Paul does not call for revolution. The direction to be subject must apply not just to good governments, but to evil ones. It applies not just to the administrations of Obama or Trump, but of Kim Jong-il and Hitler. Just because a government is established by God, though, does not mean that every or even most of the actions of that government are approved by God. God may be using an immoral government as an agent of his own will. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who destroyed the temple and enslaved God's people, my servant. Likewise, when David found King Saul asleep in his camp, David refused to kill King Saul, even though his, those with him encouraged him to do so. David said, it is wrong to raise, a, to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. In the New Testament, when Paul was preaching to the Sanhedrin, the religious and political leaders of Israel, he seems to apologize for insulting one of them. Not because the person didn't deserve it or because insults are bad and so we shouldn't do that, but because the person he insulted was a ruler. In the text it says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing next to Paul to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, and yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those standing next to Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Scripture is consistent that we should be respectful to those in power, regardless of how unworthy of that respect they seem to be. But paying respect does not always mean obedience. Despite apologizing for his disrespect, Paul continues to preach. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to uh, to worship an image of King Nebuchadnezzar when patriotic music played. Um, They believed that they owed such worship only to God. There's a line where obedience to the government becomes disobedience to God. 
in some cases, it's an easy line. If the two laws have no conflict, then the law of man becomes the law of God. When the law of man directly contradicts the law of God, the line is also fairly clear. We have to go for the law of, of God. At work, um, there's recently, about a year ago, uh, the, the administration in, imposed a food ban preventing us from eating at our desks in order to help protect the library's collections from insects. I can follow this rule without violating my commitment to God. In fact, because of the God I serve, the food ban also becomes a moral rule because according to Romans 13, there is no authority aside from that which God has established. On the other hand, at least as I understand it, the worship of God is forbidden in North Korea and the Christians in that country break man's law but honor God by doing so. Where things get more difficult is when the specific laws of man seem at odds with a more general law of God. For instance, love one another. This line between duty to rulers and duty to God can seem faint and blurred, but it becomes clearer in light of the command to love. Right As we heard today, right after Paul tells his readers in Rome to obey the government, he says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. For whoever loves fulfills the law. When the law of man seems at odds with the general command to love others, what are we to do? In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus gave the command to the crowd to love your neighbor as yourself, there is an expert of the law listening to the story. And like a good lawyer, the guy tries to define the language of the command and says, well, who is my neighbor? He knows that once neighbor is defined, there are some who would not be neighbors who he could safely ignore. Jesus expertly changes the terms of the discussion from one of statements of laws to a story. Jesus knows the legal statement allows for the adherence of the letter of the law to narrow the, the command only to what is said, but a story suggests the spirit of what is meant. He tells the story of a man who came upon a foreigner from a despised neighboring region who had been mugged and left for dead. Unlike the religious leaders, the Israelite man in the story sacrifices time and money to care for the man. Jesus asks a question with an obvious answer, who was a neighbor to the man? The larger point is don't only love your neighbors, but be a loving neighbor to everyone. So in the days of American slavery, when the law said hiding slaves was illegal, Christians loving the, neighbor, their, the slaves as their neighbors chose to obey the law of love against the law of man. Like an expert in the law, some and likely did say, could and likely did say, well, what about the slaveholder who might have depended on the labor of the slaves? What about loving them? But such questions are like the self-justifying expert in the law. There are many ways to respond, but those who understand the story of the Good Samaritan understand at a fairly intuitive level that love was best shown by protecting the person escaping from slavery. Likewise, in the 1960s, when laws in the southern states required segregation of black and white citizens in many public contexts, breaking the law was sometimes the most loving thing to do. If any of you want to see a picture of this celebrated in secular society, the recent documenta uh, documentary on Presbyterian minister and children's television personality, Mr. Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor, explores the way in which Mr. Rogers sought to create a national neighborhood of children who would grow to love others and themselves. The documentary, uh, how many of you have seen the documentary? So several of you, yeah. The, the documentary um, 
shows a clip of a news report from 1964 in which a motel owner poured acid in a pool to prevent black and white protesters from swimming together while, while they're actually in the pool. Um, five years later, in 1969, Mr. Rogers uh, aired this episode. Oh, there's Officer Clements. Hi, Officer Clements. Come oh, in. Roger, how are you? Fine. Won't you sit down? Oh, sure. Just for a moment. It's so warm. I was just uh, putting some water on my feet. Oh, it sure is. Would you like to join me? That looks awfully enjoyable, but I don't have a towel or anything. Oh, you share mine. Okay. Sure. Oh, Come along. Man. I'll put some more water in here. Oh. This is going to turn into a beautiful day. You like bare feet? Well, yeah, as I grew older, I liked it more and more. Uh-huh. So in a, a very biblical gesture, Mr. Rogers um, washes uh, the, the policeman's feet, the agent of authority's feet in this, in this story. Some might ask, which of the two men, the motel owner who poured the acid or Mr. Rogers, was the better neighbor? Sometimes, though, when surrounded by a chorus of competing voices and arguments and cultural assumptions, the most loving thing can be hard to sort out. Laws and public policies exist in part to eliminate uh, capricious enforcement, and so choosing to violate a rule must be done with appropriate fear and trembling and willingness to accept the consequences that might follow. In a passage similar to the one in Romans, Peter urges those he describes as aliens and strangers in the world to live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Um, love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then in the next chapter, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good, he writes, but even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. We are God's, we are slaves, but we are God's slaves. We must maintain a healthy fear of authority, but it is God's authority that we must fear. We should honor the emperor or whoever is the earthly authority with power over us, but we are also to revere Christ as the true Lord. And especially in Peter's time, that last statement is truly revolutionary. Though Peter can, uh, commands us to honor the emperor, within our hearts we are to revere, and the actual Greek there is the word for to make holy or to make sanctified or set apart as something very special, Christ as our true Lord, in contrast to the emperor. I know this topic may seem a little theoretical, and that may be evidence of the enormous blessing most of us have enjoyed. I have been fortunate that as I was actually trying to think of a good example of a time whenever I've had to decide between obeying the government or obeying God, I actually couldn't think of a good one. Um, in fact, Paul offers no direct exceptions to his direction be uh, subject to the governing authorities, and I suspect that's because the conflict comes rarely in most lives. I do think, though, that it's a good idea for us to have a fairly established idea for how to face such conflicts when they do arise. Right after the passage in Peter where he tells us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, he goes on to say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. Now, it's a different sort of instruction, but I think like uh, the instruction to be prepared to give an answer for our hope, 
we also should take some time to be prepared for what to do when governing authorities seem to oppose the perfect law of love. And I encourage all of us, each of you and, and myself as well, to take some time this week to try to prepare our own understanding of what, where that line is for us. From today's passage, it seems that our default position should be to obey the rules of man, regardless of the ruler. However, we must also recognize that there are times when the law of man conflicts with the perfect law of love. And when there's conflict between the law of man and the perfect law of love, the conflict can often be settled by remembering that every law of God is simply a specific example of how to love. The conflict can be settled by asking, how do we best love? And remembering that our true Lord's command is to expand love, radical love, that, create, that creates neighborhoods that transcend churches, communities, and nations. As I said, I haven't resolved these issues entirely for myself either, but if you're interested in thinking through how to be prepared for these questions when they do arise, I'd love to join you in the lounge today in the discussion group in the next hour.